2: with the Democratic Party's brand. I'm Sean Illing and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. To be sure, the country has lots of problems right now. There's inflation, a supply chain crisis, and a pandemic that just won't go away. The party in power will always pay a price for that kind of instability. And on top of all that, Democrats have seen huge chunks of their agenda stall out in Congress. Still, the Biden administration has done quite a lot for ordinary Americans, like passing a nearly $2 trillion rescue package, sending $1,400 checks to basically every American, and cutting child poverty by something like 40% that's not nothing. So why has party preference shifted in the last year from a nine point Democratic advantage to a five point Republican advantage? That's the biggest swing in a calendar year since Gallup started tracking it. I reached out to Dan Pfeiffer, a former White House communications director for President Obama, and now co-host of the Crooked Media podcast, Pod Save America. Pfeiffer's a really sharp political observer, but he's also spent a ton of time thinking about something he calls the democratic messaging deficit. His main point, and this is the abbreviated version, is that Democrats are struggling to define themselves and get their message to voters because the media environment is stacked against them in fundamental ways. And if he's right about that, and I think he is, this is an enormous challenge for the party and no one seems to know what to do about it. So, we talk about the stakes of this problem, why he thinks the left has to build its own media ecosystem, and what he thinks the Democratic Party can learn from their missteps in 2021. Dan Pfeiffer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to start by going back a few months to November when Virginia had its gubernatorial election. Obviously, the Democrats lost, and there was a lot of debate about the significance of that loss and what it did or didn't signal. Now that we have some distance from it, I'm curious, what's your read of it? Why do you think it went as badly as it did for the Dems?
3: I think it's a gigantic warning sign for the party about what's going to happen in 2022 if we stay on this path. Now, I think it's fair to say that that election was about as poorly timed as you could possibly ask for it to be. Here it is, right as inflation's ramping up, the pandemic is resurging, we're just right back into school starting again in the middle of a pandemic and parents dealing with the level of anxiety that comes with that and the disruptions that come from that. And then just as the, like, maybe the cherry on top of, the, of that terrible Sunday, it was basically, I think, the day of the election was the day that kids 5 to 12 started getting vaccinated. So you didn't even have that before you. And then you had Yunkin being an excellent candidate and McAuliffe being sort of a, a good candidate in other years, but a terrible candidate for this year, where there was a real anti-incumbent sentiment in the country. But, you know, look, if Virginia is a state that is not purple, it's blue. And if we're losing in Virginia and losing pretty handily, then we're going to be in trouble all over the country.
2: Well, moving beyond Virginia and looking at the national landscape, I've seen a lot of these poll numbers. I know you track this stuff much more closely than I do, so you've seen them as well. Why is the Democratic brand so weak right now? Do you have some kind of unified theory here?
3: Yeah, I don't know that it is a, you don't need a political science degree to be a master in polling things are not great, people are pissed off, and Democrats are in charge. That was the problem in Virginia, that was the problem in New Jersey, and that's the problem nationally, is people are incredibly exhausted and frustrated. And I think for too long, too many sort of underweighted the political impact of inflation or maybe thought it would be more transitory or quicker than people thought, but it is very real and people are very upset about it and we're in charge. And all of the conversation and coverage for the last year has been about Democrats. There's been almost nothing about Republicans. It's about fights between Democrats. Can we get Joe Manchin to do this? Can we get Kirsten Sinema to do that? What is Joe Biden doing, what he's not doing? And the thing that brought people together to beat the Republicans in 17, 18, and 20, which is the threat of Donald Trump and Trumpism and Republican radicalization, has been completely absent from the conversation for the 90 some percent of Americans who are not on Twitter.
2: Why do you think that is falling so flat? I mean, not just the kind of you know Democrats trying to scare people, as it were, with Trump as kind of the boogeyman, but just even the, the general sense among the Democrats that we are in a kind of political emergency, that there's a real, ever-present, concrete threat to American democracy. It just does not seem to be moving the needle. And I just wonder why you think that is.
3: You mean with the public?
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: I, so I think there's two factors here. One is we're in a pandemic with inflation at a 40 year high. It's very easy to understand why people are naturally going to put those two things the health and safety and financial stability of their household above the threat to democracy. So that's one. And two, no one is making the case. It's not being made in paid media, it's not being made in earned media. It has not been made from the White House or from Congress, although you're starting to see that change a little bit. And it's not covered in the press in the way that most people will consume it. Um, I will have many, as I often do, critiques of the press, but that just hasn't been the story. The story has been what can Democrats pass on Capitol Hill and not what are Republicans doing? And so it's not front of mind for anyone, and no one's doing anything to make it front of mind.
2: Oh, we'll get to the press. That's probably where (laughs) I have the most thoughts and the most um, anger. And I know this is something that you've written quite a bit about, but just kind of hanging on this for a second. I mean, there was a post-election kind of focus group study that made the rounds after Virginia. And the results of that, I mean, it was only like three or four pages, very simple. And they were looking at basically suburban voters. And I mean, it was just awful if you're a Democrat. I mean, suburban voters in Virginia couldn't Name anything Democrats had done really at all. And how is that? Why is that? Why is the message falling flat or not getting through or whatever?
3: I mean, I could go on for hours about this, but the biggest problem I think that leads to that is Democrats continue, not all Democrats, but most Democrats continue to believe the best way we're going to communicate, or maybe the only way to communicate our message is through traditional press, right? We're going to tell the New York Times, we're going to tell the CNN, we're going to tell the Richmond Times Dispatch, and they're going to communicate that to the public. That model hasn't worked for a very long time. It is just in a world where Facebook dominates, right-wing propaganda and disinformation dominate. The idea that anyone other than the most plugged in of news junkies are going to have any real information about what is happening and what is being proposed is just sort of folly. There's no evidence to suggest that would actually happen. And it's it's one of those things where our party too often, and we think the press is going to do our job for us, that they're going to communicate our message. When what we ultimately have to do is, it is our responsibility to get the message or the news into the voters we care about's ears. And that's not going to happen organically. It has to happen through paid advertising, social content we generate, progressive media, and there has been very little effort to adjust our communication strategy. The White House is better than Capitol Hill, but all across the party for a very new and difficult reality. And we did not have to do this in the Trump years because Trump dominated the conversation and he made the case against himself all the time. We just sort of sat back and let Trump do damage to himself and that was sufficient to win elections.
2: Well, a big issue in that focus group, and I imagine this probably holds in many other places beyond Virginia. You know, the voters said that Democrats are obsessed with Social issues more than they care about the economy. How much of that is perception and how much of that is reality?
3: It's very much perception. I mean, it, what is Joe Biden spent the last year doing? Passing the American Rescue Plan, which mailed s- stimulus checks to tens of millions of Americans, passing a bipartisan infrastructure deal, which is very clearly about jobs and growth, and then trying and not succeeding yet. To pass his build back better agenda, which is mailing checks to people, it is child care. It's all economic, you know, it'd be a massive economic bill. So we've been very focused on it, and people don't know that. And so that speaks to both a message problem and a megaphone problem. It's what we're saying and how people are hearing it. Because we're absolutely focused on that. It's Republicans who have no agenda. I mean, just as you know, Governor Sununu of New Hampshire said, the reason he didn't run for Senate was because he asked Republicans what they wanted to do when they were recruiting him to run against Maggie Hassan. And he said they told him nothing, just sort of blocked Joe Biden. So that's two failures. It's both a failure on our party's part and sort of the ability of the larger information ecosystem to communicate to people to what's actually happening.
2: You know, this question strikes some people as ridiculous, but I, I really don't think it is. Do you think policy still matters? like on a purely political level. I mean, look, I get that inflation is bad. I get that COVID sucks. But Democrats have actually done a lot for everyday Americans, especially Americans with kids. I mean, Jesus, as you just alluded, Biden passed a $2 trillion rescue package that included $1,400 stimulus checks for basically the entire country. And it meant nothing. It's like it never happened. It's just in the wind. I mean, if that doesn't matter, what do you do with that?
3: I mean, it is the just the killer indictment of the idea that doing popular stuff is a good political strategy. I mean, he mailed money to people, and his approval rating didn't move. I mean, it's just it's a truly stunning thing we all have to grapple with. I think the answer is, of course, policy matters, right? Having unpopular policy is really bad. The Republicans suffered greatly in 2018 from having—trying— to repeal the Affordable Care Act and passing the Trump tax bill, which was at its time the least popular piece of legislation passed in polling history, I think. And so having good policy is better than having bad policy, but it's not a sufficient way to win elections. Because I think there is this belief among too many people in politics that, and I think it's somewhat Condescending. It's really hard for us as Democrats because we believe ourselves to be the party of the working class. That we are the ones who support raising the minimum wage. We want to protect Social Security and Medicare. We are the ones who want to continue the expanded child tax credit. We want to do all those things. And here you have Republicans who, when they get into power, what do they do? They want to kick people off their health care, use that money to pay for tax cuts for the rich, right? And yet our coalition, you know, dominate among white working class voters and made some inroads with working-class voters, Black and Latino working-class voters. And so we sort of say to ourselves, if only, like this kind of view, that if only these working-class voters had any idea what was in their interest, they would support us, as opposed to understanding that people's political decisions are much more complex than that. They're about identity and culture and, you know, what their support for either party says about them, and then just like, what's best for my bottom line. And we should do all the things we're supposed to do. And I think, you know, getting the Build Back Better bill in some form done, particularly the climate provisions, will be very important. I mean, obviously for the planet, but also politically for the voters who turned out for Biden in 2020 to have them turn out again in 2022. But that is not sufficient. There is something much more emotional about politics. And then we have to think about our message. Our message needs to be more emotional appeals, you know, from a position of identity, and identity doesn't necessarily mean race and gender, than intellectual appeal or a policy appeal. Like, if you vote for us, we will give you X, right? And that X will be good for you. It's more complex than that.
2: I actually wonder what you think about this. And again, I I realize we're basically talking about two senators here, but nevertheless, (laughs) the Democrats have had some difficulties advancing their agenda, well-documented difficulties. Is the perception— that the Democrats are just incapable of governing justified, or is that, you know, unfair?
3: I think it's most certainly unfair. When you think about Joe Biden's first year, if you were to put yourself back in the time of right after the election in 2020, and someone wants to come to you and say, one year from now, the unemployment rate is going to be 3.9%. The country is going to create more than 6 million jobs, the most private sector jobs in history. Joe Biden is going to pass a $2 trillion rescue package. He's going to send checks to all these people. He's going to have child poverty. He is going to then turn around and pass a $1 trillion infrastructure bill with the support of 19 Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, and is going to then confirm more judges at this point in his presidency than any president in recent memory. And he's going to do all of that with a 50-50 Senate one of the narrowest House majorities in history, while the Republican Party was, most of the Republican Party, was refusing to acknowledge that he was the legitimate president of the United States and was openly plotting an insurrection to steal the next election. And I should add, also, fully vaccinated 75% of eligible adults in this country. Huge deal. He would say that is one hell of a year. But people obviously don't think that right now. The polls are very clear. And there are two reasons for that. One, beyond our control. The two reasons are, The pandemic and inflation there is no speech joe biden could have given no strategy that i think that could have fundamentally changed where we are now certainly that you can pick some very legitimate bones with testing and some other things as relate in masks which they're addressing now but the fact that we are having a pandemic surge is not joe biden's fault the fact that inflation is happening is not joe biden's fault we know that because it's happening all over the world the thing where i think democrats and i include myself in these democrats who did this poorly as someone who talks about these issues publicly a lot, we've done a very poor job of expectations management. Right, We have let the country and the press and our voters believe that certain things were likely to happen in terms of the size and scope of what we could accomplish with our very narrow majorities. We are engaged in that right now, where despite Joe Manchin and Kyrsten Sinema telling us 100 times over and over again that they are not going to change the mind the filibuster. We set up a high-stakes showdown that ensures that we will have a huge, giant loss You know, right at the one-year anniversary of Joe Biden's presidency, which I imagine everyone finds incredibly unhelpful. And you know, there was a quote the other day from Doug Sosnick in the Washington Post. Doug Sosnick, the former Bill Clinton White House political director, a very smart guy, who said something, and I'm paraphrasing here that Washington's all about expectations management. It's not whether you win or lose, it's whether you beat the spread. And I think all of us set a very unrealistic set of expectations and then failed to meet them. So even if and when Joe Biden accomplishes some incredibly important things, the political value of that will be diminished because it's being compared against what he could have gotten done, not against what he did get done.
2: Yeah. And look, I get that. And I get that, you know, you're a Democrat, so like you want to make the case. The Democrats, but I I also don't want to just let Biden and the administration totally off the hook here, right? I mean, they have messed things up. They have made mistakes. I mean, look for instance, I'm glad they're sending out COVID tests now to every household in the country. Why the hell didn't they do that a year ago? You know, some of the messaging has been weirdly inconsistent and strange. You know, I just how much of this is self inflicted from your point of view? I mean, are there any particular mistakes or egregious mistakes you think they've made that they could have not?
3: Yeah, I mean, the things you cite are obvious mistakes, like the fact that we did not do enough, and Joe Biden admitted as much in his press conference, did not do enough to have enough tests or enough good masks, and why that's happening in January of 2022 as opposed to in November of 2021 when Omicron hit is a very, very fair critique. I 100% agree that some of the communication from the CDC and the FDA has been poor and confusing and contributed to some of the problems in the pandemic. But there is also this double standard here, which is because Democrats believe that government is a force for good and Republicans run on anti-government platform, that Democrats have to be perfect in governing, can make no mistakes. And every single one of those mistakes is an indictment on who they are and what they stand for. And Republicans can come in and whether it's Bush or Trump do an absolutely historically miserable job at government, and that is just seen as, oh, that's Republicans. And I think it's like, what is the standard we're holding Joe Biden to? As he would say, are we comparing him to the almighty, i.e. perfection in government, or are we comparing him to the alternative, which is what we just saw with Trump?
2: I take Dan's point that Democratic presidents are graded on a steeper curve than Republican ones, which is especially striking when you think of the president before Biden. You remember, right? Angry guy, love to tweet. But there are also problems baked into the business model of media that frankly disadvantage Democrats, like our addiction to drama and bad news. So what can the Democratic Party do to break through? That's what I'll ask Dan Pfeiffer after a quick break. com slash box. you've gestured at it a couple of times and as i was saying earlier this is really where my head's at on a lot of this because well i think it's kind of everything if not everything most of it and you know, I'll start with a recent Substack post that you wrote about the media's addiction to bad news. Give me an example of what you have in mind here and maybe explain why you think that addiction is disproportionately hurting the Democrats.
3: So, one example would be, you know, this fall, the fall of 2021, America went through sort of this moral panic about a looming supply chain crisis that People were not going to be able to get turkeys for Thanksgiving. Your Christmas presents would not arrive on time. You wouldn't be able to get a Christmas tree. Holidays would be ruined. Everything is a disaster. And it received a ton of coverage, like dominating coverage. Like, it is the sort of political coverage that people actually consume because pictures of whatever empty shelf you can find is on the Today Show. It's on your local news. People are doing stand-ups in front of the local Walmart. Like, what's it going to be like at Christmas? And here's one family who couldn't find a turkey, and you just- Pure, here's this crisis coming, but then that dog didn't bark, right? Shelves were full, people got their turkeys, people's Christmas presents arrived on time, no different than any other year, which is actually quite impressive in the middle of a pandemic. And everyone covered the crisis that was coming. No one covered that it didn't happen. And that dynamic is not new; it has been around forever. You know, for years and years and years, people would say about you know television news, local news in particular, if it bleeds, it leads, car crashes, crime, always the first thing on the news because it gets ratings. And it is a trend that I think has gotten worse over time as media outlets have become more dependent on internet traffic for ad revenue, and in particular, Facebook referral internet traffic, where people are seeing a post on Facebook, clicking on that post, and then that is how the media outlet is able to monetize the ads running on that page and so everything is reverse engineered behind what goes viral on the internet and it is very clear from i mean anyone who spends any time on facebook or twitter or anywhere else that what drives traffic is scary bad stuff i mean it's not dissimilar than what drives cable news ratings you know i always sort of you know remind people if you were around in whatever it was 2013 2014 that cnn spent like a month covering the missing malaysian airliner yeah, it's obviously an important story, but not the biggest story in the world, just a story that got people to tune in, so they covered it. And the reason why, and people say, well, that's how media is, and that is totally fair, and I can we can talk about why they are that way in a second. But here's why that is a problem for Democrats, which is exactly the question you just asked me. You have a media who views it as their job, both, I think, morally and financially, to point out when things go wrong. And Democrats are people who are arguing that government can work and should work for you. And so you get a gazillion stories about when things go wrong in government and no stories about when things go right. And so that facilitates a conservative narrative that government is a disaster, right? That all government is like your one trip to the DMV. It's inefficient. It doesn't work. People waste money, lazy government bureaucrats, when that is not actually the case. You know, and you see this, you know, we can argue about the timing, Of when Joe Biden launched his testing site, but then everyone signed on and put their address in, and it worked great. The website didn't crash, and it got some a little attention, but it wasn't a dominant story. But if that website had crashed, it would have been the lead story on every news. And that just puts an extra bit of downward pressure on Democrats as they're trying to make the case because the argument that when things are working, that policy is helping people, the government is helping people, never gets coverage. But when it doesn't help people, when it doesn't work, that gets a ton of coverage.
2: I I feel like you're diagnosing an insoluble problem
3: it is it's i believe it's insoluble
2: because it's just baked into the business model of the political press right i mean but also publications keep scaring the shit out of their audiences because the audiences keep coming back for more and you know you had flagged this tweet in one of your posts from the editor-in-chief of politico who was like celebrating the 20 percent of the most engaging stories from 2021 not 2020 from 2021 were Politico, and 21 of the top 50 most engaged stories were about Donald Trump, a guy that stopped being president like three weeks into the year. I mean, that's that's bananas.
3: Yeah. I mean, it, for all the complaints that people have about how much coverage Trump is getting, the showing of the empty podium by CNN famously during the 2020 election, why the Sunday shows let Donald Trump dial in by phone, you know, like here's a TV show, letting someone call in and use audio. And it's because people are obsessed with Trump content. It gets clicks. And I think if we were going to be totally fair about it, and this is a huge mistake that I think so many Democrats make is media is a business their job is to make money. They have a payroll. Some of them have shareholders. If they don't make money, they have to fire people. So there's sort of always this discordant thing with on Twitter where it's like, why are they covering all these terrible things? Like, look at all this clickbait. Look, they're just chasing ratings. And then we're like, I can't believe all these reporters just got laid off. What a crisis of journalism. And it's like, this is the business model. You know, it works for some, it doesn't work for others, but Media is a business and it's not going to change itself. I don't see any evidence that anything is going to change. And it's always been a business. It was a better business before because of advertising dollars before the internet and Facebook and everyone ruined everything. But to expect media to make decisions as if they were in public service as opposed to business is just deeply naive.
2: Yeah. And look, I'll repeat a point you make. There's a demand side problem here that can't be ignored. If people would stop you people, all of you people yes, would stop consuming the fear porn. The supply side would adapt quickly. But again, I don't, that's another problem without a solution in sight, but yeah. it's worth stating nevertheless.
3: Yeah, you're exactly right, which is they are not force-feeding us this stuff. They are giving us back what we tell them we want. And just so people understand how you can speak to this in greater detail than I can, but sort of a simplification is in the internet age of media, the outlets track incredibly closely the traffic every story gets. And if a story is getting a lot of traffic, they will write more things about that story. They will often, you know, what is called AB or ABC test headlines. And, you know, one will be pretty straightforward and one will be a little more panic porn or whatever else and whichever one gets more traffic, they'll double down on. And so... It is a feedback loop. They're serving us this food because this is the food we keep ordering. I don't think this is something you can sort of socially engineer, but if more people clicked on the in-depth policy stories that the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other people wrote, then they would write more of those stories, but they're clicking on the Trump stories, so they're writing more Trump stories, or they're clicking on the Democrats in disarray story, so they're writing more of those stories. One thing I should add to that I think is important. It's not just people, right? There's an algorithmic issue here. This stuff is traveling through social media. Social media is making decisions about what to show people based on engagement. And the way they weight engagement is anger, like I'm dramatically oversimplifying here, but anger is an equivalent level of engagement as support. And so when the New York Times writes a story that angers Democrats and pleases Republicans, that is going to get double the engagement of a story that just pleases Democrats or that is just a straight story that evokes no emotional reaction because – It's going to be seen by more whenever it's posted on social media. More people will comment. More people will share. More people will give it a thumbs down or an angry emoji or whatever metric you use. And therefore, it gets shown to more people. So more people click on it. There's an algorithmic perversion to what people are seeing that is sort of self-perpetuating here as well.
2: Well, the other side of this conversation is more, I think, internal to the Democratic Party and what they can and can't do in this media environment. You've called this the Democratic messaging deficit. I have a lot to say about that, but before I do, can you just kind of explain what that deficit is?
3: No, which is that the Republicans have spent decades building up a massive ideological-based media apparatus. You know, we think about it as Fox News, but it's not just Fox News. It is Breitbart, Gateway Pundit, Daily Caller, Talk Radio, you know, been around for a long time, still incredibly powerful in a lot of places— and an entire facebook centric digital army kind of led by like the likes of Ben Shapiro and Dan Bongino that dictates the four corners of the political conversation and drowns out democratic messaging. They have a giant army and we have just like a couple people with, you know, shooting spitballs to try to keep up and we're getting clobbered on it.
2: Well, this is a point my former colleague uh, at Vox, Dave Roberts has made and I've tried to make it in a few different places. And you're making it here, at least a version of it, right? Republicans have constructed a massive, insular, self-contained media ecosystem that delivers their version of reality straight to voters, whereas the Democrats still rely on traditional media as the primary means of distribution. That's kind of the whole game right there, Dan, isn't it? I, I don't, yeah, as long as thing. that is the case, the Democrats are screwed, are they not?
3: Yeah. Yeah. That is the case. And like Democrats can still win elections in that environment. I know that because we just did it in 2020 and 2018, but we are competing with one hand tied behind our back when we do it. And it becomes incredibly difficult when we are in power because it becomes nearly impossible. You have this massive apparatus communicating this negative message, this version of reality at scale to tens of millions of people. And they are doing it with the exact... Optimize political message for Republicans. And then you have Democrats trying to communicate their message, but it's not being delivered by people who share Democratic interests. It's being delivered by the media, who we just talked about, the traditional media, who have very different interests. Some of those interests are good. We may not like some, I may not like some of them, but they are not our interests, right? They do not view it as their job to tell people why Democrats are good and Republicans are bad. It is to inform people or generate traffic or what, you know, it's different for everyone. And it is just such a massive asymmetry and it has been evident for years and years and years and so little was accomplished in the Trump years to narrow that gap. It's actually worse now than it was before.
2: My view, and maybe this is Controversial, or maybe me, I'm just wrong. That's entirely possible. (laughs) But my view is that the majority of people are ideologically vacuous, which is to say, I don't think they really have fixed or coherent political beliefs. And if that's true, then what really matters is issue salience. People will fixate on whatever issues are ascended at any given moment. And if those issues are critical race theory or immigration, whatever, that's bad for Dems. And if the issues are healthcare, social security, or whatever, that's probably good for Democrats. I mean, is, am I wrong about any of that? And if so, how so?
3: No, I think you are correct that issue salience is of incredible importance to voters. Because where Democrats have won election presidential elections in recent years, it was in 2012 and 2020, where Even with the power of the Republican right-wing media machine, they couldn't really change the most salient issue. In 2012, it was the economy. And they had much, much, much less power to dictate the terms of the debate back in 2012. And in 2020, it was the pandemic. They could change how lots of people viewed the pandemic and you know, sort of bend reality about Trump's response to the pandemic, but it was going to be the pandemic. For as powerful as Fox and Facebook and Breitbart and everyone is, you can't, you can't make a pandemic go away when everyone's been locked in their homes for nearly a year at that point. But look at 2016. There was no reason that immigration should have been a top issue in 2016 other than Donald Trump and the right wing wanted it to be the top issue because it was the issue that benefited them. So they made it the top issue. There was no border crisis. There was no precipitating event that made immigration more salient in 2016 than it was in a previous election it was because republicans decided that was good for them so they did it
2: yeah yeah i remember when hillary clinton was running and you know a lot of people were complaining that you know she needs to talk more about the bread and butter economic issues and i was one of the people bitching about that and making those same noises and then again dave roberts is getting a lot of shout outs here um, today (laughs) but i remember for vox he he actually did a, a content analysis of hillary clinton's speeches During that campaign and when you looked at what she actually said she spent way more time talking about the economy and these sorts of things than she did about you know immigration or whatever social issues whatever but that wasn't reflected in the coverage it just simply didn't matter the idea that she could dictate issue salience by virtue of what she was saying was just false and it's even more so today because the the media environment is even more kind of ideological and polarized and fragmented
3: So I I have spent the last year working on a book on this very topic, uh, which is coming out in June. And one of the things that in my research I discovered was 2012 was a huge wake-up call for Republicans. In the sort of D.C. establishment view, the thought was that wake-up call was going to be that, you know, Republicans are, you know, too right-wing on these issues. They need to be, you know, more open on immigration. They have to moderate if they're ever going to win in this changing America with the Obama coalition. But for folks like the Mercers, the billionaire funders of Breitbart and big Trump supporters and Steve Bannon, the lesson was they have to do exactly what you're doing. They have to build the apparatus to decide what the election is about. Because the election was on the economy. Mitt Romney agreed that's what the election should be on. But Obama was able to dictate how that debate played itself out that it was going to be a choice between two differing views on the economy as opposed to just sort of some sort of referendum on Obama. And so they built this apparatus. That is, you know, what Breitbart was for. That is what the building up of all of these other digital sites that came out of that election were meant to do is to pump content into the social media ecosystem to decide what things were about. And you know Fox has been around forever. It's always been influential, but it is the combination of Fox, what is on TV, what Fox is doing on Facebook and digitally and all these other sites that have increased this power of the right wing to decide what gets talked about, to dictate the conversation and that it puts Democrats at a dramatic disadvantage.
2: It's why I mean 2012 is really not that long ago, but no, but good god, I mean it feels like in eternity, in political time and in technological time. I mean, how much different does the whole landscape look to you today than it did back then? I mean, could Obama, if you just replicated everything else, could Obama or someone like that win today running the same kind of campaign or would the conditions in the environment be such that that just simply wouldn't work?
3: Well, the media environment is dramatically different. And I can sort of remember the moment when it hit tipping point. And the main factor here that has changed everything is Facebook. Right around 2014, it sort of hit a tipping point. It was reaching that enough people, and enough people were turning to it for news that it became massively influential. For the entire, you know, first six years or so of the Obama administration, there'd be some dumb thing that would like dominate Politico or cable news or whatever else. And then we would do focus groups with voters and they would have not a clue what we were talking about. You know, a lot of times they also wouldn't know what Obama had done that week, but they certainly did not know whatever the crisis du jour in Washington was. It just was not penetrating to people because it was information for political junkies that political junkies were opting into by reading and viewing explicitly political content. Yeah. 2014, when the IRS scandal, the fake IRS scandal became this big deal, White House is in a panic. Now, I am senior advisor in the White House at that time. I'm supposed to be the person with the political sense. And I walk into the chief of staff's meeting. I'm like, this is a huge problem in Washington. I can't imagine people are consuming this out in the country, that it means anything. About a week or so later, we do the DNC's regular focus groups. And they ask a question about it. And I remember I was watching this on my computer at home, just very confident what I'm about to hear. And then everyone knew about it. And not only they know about it, they were talking about it in the exact ways that Fox was talking about it, or, or the Republicans were talking about it. So they were like, they were reading RNC talking points back to us. And I was like, well, that's weird. And I thought, well, maybe this is unique because it's the IRS and it's got these echoes of Watergate, so it breaks through to people in a way that other things wouldn't. And then there was, I think it was the Office of Personnel Management had a very there was a scandal about them spending a bunch of money on bagels and breakfast and a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, it was just sort of really dumb use of government funds. And that showed up at the next focus groups. And when the the moderator would ask, "Like, where are you hearing this? The answer was Facebook. And it's just such a dramatically different environment now. The right-wing forces of disinformation and propaganda are stronger than they were. And trust in the traditional press, which was supposed to be a bulwark against that propaganda disinformation, is dramatically lower than it was then. I think Obama could win in this environment because he was incredibly digitally savvy and had the sort of thought about the internet in ways that most Democratic politicians have not. But you couldn't run the same campaign because the, your ability to dictate the terms of debate are much more limited now than they are then. So you have to figure out how to—I'm not saying we have to learn how to win on their issues, but we have to learn how to pivot off their issues, how have to, you know, sort of take that punch and turn it back against them.
2: This may be a silly question because we've probably answered it, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Can the Democrats message their way out of this problem, given everything you have just said?
3: You can win an election in this environment, right? Like I said, we've done it before, we can do it again, but you need everything to go your way. Like, in the long run, or in the medium term, the only answer here is to build up a progressive media and messing operation that can compete with the right-wing one. I mean, people have been screaming about it for a long time. It has to happen. There have been some good recent efforts. I'm proud to be a part of that with what Crooked Media has been doing for the last few years. But there is still not a commitment from the top of the party or the party's donor base to solving this problem. Why? We've solved a bunch of problems in the Trump years, right? We helped solve some of our tech and data problems. We helped solve some of our organizing problems and building up more grassroots groups and all of the above. But this one continues to linger in a very disturbing ways.
2: Dan, baby, help me understand this. Because you're in this world, you're having these kinds of conversations. How is this not better understood? How is that message not getting through to the people at the top of the Democratic Party or the kind of movers and shakers in the progressive world? Like, How did they not see that this is something that is urgent and necessary, essential even? I, I don't get it.
3: So I think there's a couple, just in my experience, and other people have had other conversations, there's a couple of concerns people have. One is generational, Mm. right? There's a younger set of Democrats who are much more savvy about this and much more focused on it and trying to draw attention to it at the age of 46 i am probably at the at the upper band of people of that generation but there is a lot of younger democrats have been screaming about this for a very long time i mean like this is the consequence of in part of having a party leadership that is so much older you have people here who started their political careers in the golden age of television you know decades before the internet was invented and so getting people to adjust to a new model you know when our leadership is so much older is very very challenging one of Obama's great comparative advantages against other politicians was because he did not enter politics until later in life, national politics later in life, he like consumed the internet and social media like a normal human. So he had a better sense of it, at least as of the day he started running for president than other people have who've never used the internet as a normal person or used email even because they're politicians and they have people who do that for them. The other thing is, you know, we have spent so much time, myself included, demonizing Fox for propaganda, that there is this visceral reaction from a lot in the donor community about doing things that could be labeled, quote-unquote, propaganda, Mm. right? Which is why you see Democratic billionaires buying The Atlantic and Time magazine and not trying to build a non-racist, more honest, better version of Breitbart or Democratic Fox News or whatever that would look like. And then the other thing that I think you hear a lot from sort of a certain segment of Democratic voters is there was this effort to build up Democratic progressive talk radio in the early parts of the century with Air America, and that project failed. And that, for a certain set of donors, that is a very formative experience in the business challenges of this. But we don't—the thing is, Republicans' view— these media outlets, not as a profit engine, even though some of them are, but as an investment in politics. Every single one, pick a digital right-wing outlet that started in the last 10 years, and there is a Republican billionaire behind it. Yeah. Right, whether it is the Mercers and Breitbart whether it is, you know, obviously, Murdoch and Fox, it is Foster Freeze and The Daily Caller. There are these two brothers who made billions on their fracking business in Texas, who gave the seed capital to Ben Shapiro. I mean, every single one of them has Republican billionaire kind because they view building up this media infrastructure as a way to achieve their policy goals.
2: And it was worth every cent they invested. The return on that has been extraordinary.
3: Yeah, look at their tax cuts, right? I mean, it's, this is changing some, right? Whether you have the More Perfect Union, which is the progressive video outlet started by Fash Shakir, Bernie Sanders' campaign manager, whether you have Courier Newsroom and Good Information, which is the progressive effort to fight disinformation at the local news started by Tara McGowan that is funded by Reid Hoffman and George Soros. Like, there is some efforts here, but we have a long way to go to convince the bulk of the party to engage at this level.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is something I've always said, you know, Democrats like to win arguments, Republicans like to win. And they just seem to get what it takes in a way that Democrats, for whatever reason, don't. And it can be very frustrating to watch.
3: I've always said that the greatest asymmetry in American politics is that Democrats view political power as a means to an end, and Republicans view it as an end in and of itself.
2: Yeah, well said. And look, I think a venture like Crooked Media I think does prove that there is some kind of market for this, but do you think something on the scale of what the right has done is possible on the left? Or do you think it's just for a variety of reasons, a different market with a different customer base, for lack of a better word, that would make that more difficult?
3: I think the market is 100% there. There is no question about that in my mind. And you've seen trust in traditional media sources among Democrats begin to decline over the last few years for the first time in recent memory. So it's obviously not at the Republican level, which has dropped like 35 points, I think, since Donald Trump was elected. But there's more openness to it. There's more frustration with how the, you know, quote-unquote, traditional political media covers things. It has to be a different product than what the Republicans offer. There is a different psychology. There's a different desire. You know, the Pew media studies prove this every time, but Democrats have a much more diverse media diet than Republicans. I don't think you can create... On the progressive side, this hermetically sealed information bubble that allows you to have some of these Republicans have one conversation with their voters and then one conversation with the rest of the electorate. There's nothing I've seen yet that suggests that, you know, if you listen to Pod Save America or, you know, you subscribe to some of these other progressive outlets I've talked about, that you're gonna stop listening to NPR or reading the New York Times or anything like that. But I think we have to think about this as a megaphone. How do we build up a megaphone who's gonna have a direct line our voters and help shape the conversation in a way that Republicans have been able to do for decades?
2: Whatever your politics, it's hard to deny Dan's basic point here. Republicans have done a better job of building a media ecosystem that serves their interest. And on top of that, there's just a lot of anxiety right now. A pandemic, inflation, a brewing conflict with Russia. And that means the midterms are looking bleak for Democrats. After one last short break, I'll ask Dan, how bleak? Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
1: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away.
2: Well, I'll just ask, how bad do you expect it to be in 2022? Are they looking at a bloodbath here, a political bloodbath? Well,
3: if the midterms were tomorrow, we would be just screwed beyond belief. I am optimistic that the most important factor, which is conditions on the ground, will get much better, both in terms of the pandemic and hopefully inflation as well. Everything is going against us right now, right? The political winds are at the Republicans' backs. It's a redistricting year, and although redistricting has not been as fruitful for them as they had originally hoped, it's still, you know, it's an incredibly narrow majority. They don't have to do very much to take the reins. But we have some things going in our favor. All the the major Senate races are in states that Joe Biden won. The most important governors are happening in states that Joe Biden won. There is a very clear anti-Trump majority in this country. It's a coalition that came together in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. All we have to do to win in most places is just turn out people who voted for Joe Biden. We don't have to go flip a bunch of people in the New York Times to talk to in diners with MAGA hats. We just have to go get people who voted for Joe Biden. And so that is a something that is achievable. We are currently not on a path to do that with great success, but there is some time to change that.
2: What do you think? is the biggest thing or the biggest things the Democrats can learn from what went wrong in 2021 so as to improve their prospects in 2022 and beyond?
3: I think the biggest problem, there are a gazillion problems in Virginia, but just if you're trying to look at tactics and strategy, I think the biggest problem with the McAuliffe campaign was it treated the voters like idiots. Glenn Youngkin was endorsed by Trump. He's adhered to a lot of Trump's views. He believed, or at least said he believed the big lie. But there was nothing about him that made people think he was Trump. You know, he was not a MAGA candidate in the obvious MAGA candidate. Like a lot of these people that you're going to see in some of these Senate races, like a Herschel Walker or a Josh Mandel, if he were to win, or JD Vance or any people like that. He was somewhere between Donald Trump and Mitt Romney. And that was pretty obvious to voters. And when you go around telling people, calling them, Glenn Trumpkin or saying the night before the election that if Glenn Youngkin wins this race, Donald Trump will announce for president next day. You're just, voters, you're treating them like idiots. And one of the takeaways from that election for some people was, see, talking about Trump doesn't work. In my view, that's the wrong takeaway. Because I don't think talking about Trump is an option, right? He is the leader of the Republican Party. He's like working with them out the open to plot plans to steal the 2024 election. He is the most influential Republican. He is planning on running for president you know, would likely announce that a few months after the 2022 election. Like, we have to talk to them. We have to figure out about smart ways to talk about them. Obviously, the California recall is not some perfect model for the rest of the country, but I think there are some things to look at there about how you run. Because, yes, it's California, but Gavin Newsom did just as well in 2021 as he did in 2018. It was almost the exact same margin in a apocalyptic, terrible Democratic year as— It was in an absolutely incredible Democratic year. And Larry Elder is a bad candidate, but there are going to be a lot of bad candidates running a lot of races. And so what I took from that is that the argument is not calling your candidate Trump, but is putting the Republicans, framing them as Trumpists, right? That they are part of this dangerous movement that brought this coalition together to take the House, the Senate, and the White House.
2: What would your most basic, like, fundamental bit of advice be for any Democratic campaign in 2022? And I realize there are lots of differences in each race based on where they are and the voting base there and all that. But just in terms of, like, just a basic, universalist bit of advice, what would the first one
3: be? Is that we need to hammer home a negative message about the Republicans on the economy. We have ceded this territory. Republicans have—they have no economic plan— to the extent they have an economic plan, it is the least popular policy agenda possible. Like if you were to take a political science exam and they would say, "Find a way to lose an election," it would probably be cut Medicare and Social Security to ensure that Amazon continues to pay zero tax dollars. That's <laughs> like incredibly unpopular. But we have to frame who they are and what it's about, and fighting that battle on the economic territory, I think, is going to make give us some credentials to talk about what Biden has done and move the election at least a little bit more if possible into a choice versus a referendum because it does like you said every midterm election is a referendum on the party of power of course because if the party of power wins everyone will say see it's proof that people like him and if they lose it'll say the opposite but every voter still has to go into the voting booth or sit at their desk with a mail ballot to make a choice but also we need to convince people it's not just between Democrats and Republicans it's about whether people who got engaged in politics after 2016 to support Democrats, get engaged again in 2022. And whether people who supported Republicans prior to 2016 but supported Democrats in 2018 and 2020 continue to support Democrats. And I think the best chance we have to do that is by framing the Republicans negatively on the economy.
2: I hate to do this because I don't want to sound like a Chris Matthews-esque cable news host, but (laughs) I'll ask anyway. What the hell do you think is going to happen in 2024? Be honest. Good or bad? Just give it to me straight up. What do you expect to happen?
3: You mean, like, who's going to win?
2: And not even necessarily who's going to win, but, like, do, do you think it's going to be a, a Republican, whether it's Trump or anyone else?
3: No, I, I don't think we have any way of knowing that. Democrats continue to be favored in presidential elections. Not as much as they should be because of the biased electoral college, but, you know, it's worth remembering the Republicans have won the popular vote in this country once since 1988. And the country is becoming more center-left, more pro-democratic nationally. I wish that trend played itself out more aggressively in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, etc. But it's just impossible to know what things are going to look like. You know, I'm expecting that we will have a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And the most important factor, I think, in how this really plays itself out is what happens in 2022 and do Republicans have the power to hand the presidency to someone who won either the popular vote or the electoral college, because that is what they intend to do. That is what they are planning to do. They are very open about it. They are recruiting people to run for office to do that. The people running for Secretary of State, Republican candidates are just sort of almost universally big lie adherents. And so it's hard to know what's going to happen in 2024, but what's happening in 2022 is going to have a huge impact on what the end game looks like.
2: I realize a lot can happen between now and then, but you know Biden's polling numbers are bad, really, really bad. And maybe they won't be in twenty twenty four. But do you think Democrats would be better off if they had someone else at the top of that ticket? Whether or not that's even conceivable is a, a separate question. But do you think another Biden run would be a drag, or, or at least an obstacle to overcome?
3: No, I think probably the I think probably the opposite. Really, and just on the polling thing, if Biden's numbers are bad now. But I would also just take people back to September of 2011, which was Obama's polling nadir. That was when the New York Times ran that magazine ran that notorious cover said, that said "Is Obama toast?" and you used Nate Silver's model to suggest that Obama was probably going to lose. And then he won election with a very large, historically large electoral college margin, you know, 14 months later. And so things change very quickly. And right now, you know, Joe Biden is in charge and people are pissed off. And the conditions on the ground will change. Hopefully they'll change for the better. And people have to make a choice. And if that choice is between the guy who eventually got us out of the pandemic and the guy who screwed it up to begin with, that's a choice that would favor Joe Biden.
2: All right. Dan Pfeiffer, I really appreciated your time here and I enjoyed this. So thank you so much for coming on.
3: Awesome, Sean. Thank you.
2: vox conversations is produced by eric Janikis. our editor is amy Trostanska. paul robert mouncey mixed and mastered this episode our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious breakmaster cylinder and amber hall is the deputy editorial director of vox talk and thanks to victoria dominguez the vox audio fellow for her help on this episode if you like the show let us know room for improvement we want to hear that too We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.